Nicholas Griffin has done something very remarkable in his new book, The Year of Dangerous Days, Riots, Refugees, and Cocaine in Miami 1980. He captures the smells, the sounds, heat, and fear that ran rampant in this city, the city into which I was born. He achieves this through masterful reporting, identifying the major players of that tumultuous year and telling what happened through their eyes. I predict that this book will take its place among those great pieces of writing and art where a city becomes a metaphor for something greater, just like Eric Larson's Devil in the White City did about Chicago, or TV's The Wire about Baltimore. I was living here in Miami in 1980, and it felt like we were being knocked around as a community. And now, 40 years later, the year of dangerous days weaves all the threads of that chaotic time into a tapestry that not only illustrates then, but is reflective of where we are now. Nicholas is a journalist. He's an author. His last book was called The Ping Pong Diplomacy. He's also a novelist. Nick, you've written four novels, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And he lives now in my, on Miami Beach, which is where I grew up. Um, and you've been here for how long? When did you get to Miami? Just exactly seven years ago. So tell me, uh, Nick, where did this idea come up to tackle the Miami of 1980? Well... I always like to ask the big dumb questions because sometimes they're so dumb that no one has bothered answering them. Uh, and so in this question, the, you know, the, the big dumb question for me is why am I living in an American city that really doesn't feel like an American city at all? Why do 63% of people speak Spanish as a first language? And why does every other American city absorb immigrants and make them American? But in this city, you get to retain your Latin American identity. How, how can that happen? And, you know, I started digging around and sort of, yes, we all know that Cubans arrived in Miami in 1960, but 1980 becomes this incredible hinge year that sets all these things in motion that leads us to present day Miami. What was it about that year that got your interest and so much uh, focused? Well, I think it's because you, you know, if you live in Miami, you start hearing a lot about Miami history naturally. And people mention, yes, we all know We've all read or seen our fair share of cocaine cowboy stuff. We've all heard about the Mariel boat lift. Uh, you know, and, 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 you know, we've even heard about some of the riots that went on in 1980. And, but you would always hear about these things as if they sort of happened on their own. And the shock to me when I started digging into 1980 was that those, those are three of the biggest events that have ever happened in Miami. And they actually all start happening within six weeks of one. So imagine if you're a policeman in December 79 compared to a policeman in December 1980, you are living in two entirely different cities. And it's, the changes have happened at such an extraordinary rapid rate that people are either paranoid, uh, fearful, or they've just left. Talk about the Miami of that time. Talk about what it was before um, the events of 1980. What did Miami seem like? Miami at the end of the 70s was, was still trying to reclaim some of its former glory. It was sort of a forgotten town. Uh, life on the beach was really slow. The, it was one of the oldest demographics in, 
in America was Miami Beach. Uh, had the largest concentration of, of, uh, of Holocaust survivors outside of Israel. Uh, but it has one important dynamic personality who I should mention early on here, and that's, it has a dynamic mayor, and that was Maurice Ferre. And he had been quietly working to change Miami. He, you know, a lot of the people around him uh, had hoped Miami could become maybe a mini Atlanta or a mini Jacksonville or something along those lines. And he was like, hang on, he was a Latin American. He was born in Puerto Rico. He was like, why don't we look at a bigger map here? We don't need to look north. If we look south, there's an extraordinary opportunity for Miami to be this sort of entry point and, and service sector for the entire of the Caribbean, Central and South America. So you had this guy working feverishly to turn around Miami's fortunes. And things were looking really good. There was a Financial Times journalist who arrives in 79. He's writing this series of, you know, Miami on the brink of reclaiming its glory. And then, boom, 1980 hits. And that's the beauty of your book is you tell it through the eyes of Maurice Ferre and others. Um, Maurice was a very interesting person. Unfortunately, he recently died. But he was, if, if I'm not mistaken, was he, wasn't he the first Latin American mayor of a U.S. city, if I'm not mistaken? So he was a total, total uh, pioneer. Uh, and he bridged the gaps because, of course, he'd actually, he was from an immensely wealthy family. He was one of the wealthy, wealthiest families in America. Uh, at their height, they had $400 million in the bank in, in the 70s. Now, while he's mayor, all of that money disappears. They lose, they lose almost all of it. Uh, but he, he's thought of pretty much as a, as a wasp by the wasps because he's been educated in the finest boarding. He goes to Lawrenceville. Uh, you know, but, but he's not. He's a Latin, and he's a blue-blooded Democrat as well. Uh, but at the same time, he's very business-friendly. So... You know, he's this fascinating combination, combination of things, but, but he knows how to cross all the lines that are beginning to exist in Miami. Big Latin community already in 79, that's over a third of the city. You know, a, a white community that's a mixture of sort of uh, Jews who've, who've come south from the Northeast and white Southerners, and then still a sizable black community, many of whom have been here from the very start of Miami's history. And he knows how to crisscross all of those lines. I, th I think that was his brilliance, is the way that he was able to do that. Because the Miami that I remember in the late 70s, when I just came back to town, was a Miami that was very, very segregated. Tell me how the year started off so calamitously. Well, I think the first crisis, which, is, which people realize is coming only to Miami. I mean, there are lots of other crises happening. This is an election year, 1980. Carter's looking at 18% inflation. He's looking at the Russians invading Afghanistan. Uh, he's looking at the Iranian hostage crisis. So it's already crises everywhere. But the one that really swamps Miami immediately at the beginning of the year is this realization that something really strange is happening in the banking system in Miami. Because Federal Reserves, you know, America's divided into 12 different systems. Every one of those systems in 1980 was running like a deficit or a surplus of around 100 million bucks. And then suddenly Miami becomes this extreme outlier there's a $7 billion surplus going on in Miami, and no one knows what this thing is. And after a bit of analysis up in Washington, D.C., they realize that there's no such thing as a legitimate industry that can produce $7 billion. Tourism is only $5 billion in Florida then. So they realize pretty quickly that this is cocaine money. And that's now we, we know that, right? We've all seen narcos and all the rest of it. 
But if you ask the DEA in 1979 what America's biggest problem was, they, everyone in Washington would have said that it was heroin. Only the DEA guys down in Miami knew what was happening down here. And they were ringing the bells and waving the flags, but, but they weren't getting the money to fight it. Uh, so you can imagine when you get that amount of cash running through one city, how quickly it can corrupt a city. And that's the first things, that's, those are the warning bells going off in January. Banking system, pretty darn rotten. Uh, I think there are 26 banks who are identified as taking large amounts of cocaine money already in, by that period. And the other place that gets corrupted very early on is law enforcement, because of course they're banging up against the cocaine cowboys very early on as well. So the homicide department, is a third of it is being run by one cocaine dealer. Uh, so you can imagine when the FBI launch, launch an investigation there and knock out anyone connected to a corrupt detective, that suddenly you only have two members of the homicide department left with more than a year's experience. Talk a little bit about what it felt like on the streets of Miami because of all of that. That's the rise of, you know, the cocaine brings the bloodshed. And, the, and these are not events happening in, you know, dark, dark alleys. These are events happening in malls. There are killings in the airport. There are killings in liquor stores. Uh, they're very public executions. It's, you know, these, these guys who are coming in from Colombia to do the killing, you know, have no interest in American law. Yes, they may have seen a few mob movies of what was going on in Chicago in the 1920s, 30s, but, but they're not playing by any sort of American crime rules. So there's a sense that someone could bring out a machine gun anywhere at any time. And it's a real sense of fear that starts, starts crisscrossing Miami early on in that year. And you tell that story through the eyes of two very interesting folks. You want to talk about them a little bit? Sure. Two people who often found themselves on the same scene. One was the captain of homicide that year, Marshall Frank, uh, who was also the first violinist in the Broward County Orchestra. So, fa you know, fascinating, a real, real sort of an, an, an intellectual inside, inside the law enforcement community and super smart guy. It's spent many years as a homicide detective and now he's running it. So it's through his eyes. And then of course there's Edna Buchanan who ends up covering over 5,000 murders in, in Miami. Uh, but that's the year as she'd later say that she went from being, you know, a journalist to, to a war reporter. Uh, you know, when she starts covering crime in Miami, there are less than 120 murders in the county a year. By the time it peaks, it's just around 600. So you can imagine what that does to your workload. You've just, you know, no one else is helping in that job, but you've now got 400% more work to do. And the same went for Marshall Frank and Homicide. So they were under extreme pressure in, in certainly in 1980 and, and also into 81. Edna went on to win the Pulitzer, and she also wrote a book which has a lot of her nonfiction coverage of that period called The Corpse Had a Familiar Face. And I love the name of that book. It's a great book. <laughs> but, um, all right, so then we, so we had the beginning of the cocaine sort of crisis here. So layered on that, what came next? <laughs> well, then, just when you think, you know, you've got, you've got the cocaine uh, crisis happening right in front of you, then, then, then we get oh, two more. One is, is the killing of Arthur McDuffie, uh, which will lead to the worst day in Miami's history. And that is the story of a 33-year-old black ex-Marine. He's working, he's a middle-class guy who's working as an insurance agent 
life is going great for the first time in a while for him. He's just won Asian of the Year. He's got his free trip to Hawaii. Uh, in theory, he's about to get back together with his wife. But on this night, he's just been visiting or a potential possible girlfriend. No one really knows. But on the way home that night, he blows through a stop sign on his motorbike. Then there's an eight-minute chase, which ends up having over a dozen police cars in it. And when he pulls over and puts his motorbike on his kickstand, two and a half minutes later, he's unconscious and on the way to hospital. There's a police cover-up over what happened that night. Uh, he dies in hospital three days later. Uh, and the person who figures all of this out is Edna Buchanan. And it's when she calls the chief of detectives and goes, what can you tell me about McDuffie? And the chief of detectives goes, I've never even heard this name, that the chief of detectives realizes that something is going on inside the apartment, inside his department. Uh, so there's this extreme moment of patience where the black community don't hit the streets. This is so obvious. You've got a dead man. You've got, you know which, which police cars are on scene. And so there's a real chance for justice here. And this, this case is tried up in Tampa and all the officers are acquitted. And that's the night that Miami is burned down. And it is a terrifying 48 hours when the police lose control of huge, huge acreages of, of Miami. The National Guard are called in and it's two days of fires, of murders, of looting. Uh, really terrifying, terrifying time. It's also pent-up frustration from years and years of um, what it what was what was very clearly you know police brutality that was happening in the black community I mean it's interesting that um, in terms of what we've just been through when our president used the words of uh, I forget what it was shoot the looters or whatever it was that yeah, was from that was from Sheriff Headley, who was, you know, the head of the uh, Sheriff's Department here in Miami-Dade County in the 60s, I believe. Yeah, that was when, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, That's which was even in the 60s considered this incredibly provocative statement. And it's actually Mayor Foray, first thing he does when he gets, when he enters town and when he gets the mayorship in 73, is he takes the city attorney up, up to Washington and and he sues his own police chief to change the way things happen down in Miami. Uh, so, you know, one sad thing about the McDuffie instance is that this was a police department trying to change itself already. It was aware, and in 79, there had been a lot of changes, and you could argue that things were actually heading in the right direction, and then you get this series of events that happens, and McDuffie's the straw that breaks the camel's back. So you then have that, and... It, and and then, and then lastly, not <laughs> even not lastly, least, not least um, you have Marielle. So talk yes. about Marielle. And, and, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I lived through it. It was such, a, such an important thing that happened in my own life. I was teaching high school, actually, at the time. Uh, but it's amazing how many people have forgotten about it. They just don't yeah. think about it. So, so remind us of what Marielle uh, was and is. Sure. So Marielle starts in early April in Havana, Cuba, when a, bu a bus full of asylum seekers drive their bus through the gates of the uh, Peruvian embassy. And Castro is furious. And instead of, he tries to drag them out. And they, the 
Peruvian ambassador won't let him out. And he decides to throw the gates open. He goes, you know what? Anyone who wants to leave Cuba, walk on in. And he's thinking no one's actually going to dare go in there or no, maybe no one wants to leave. And within 24 hours, there are 10,000 people crammed into the Peruvian embassy, hanging off trees, doing anything they can to get out of Cuba. And this looks like a terrible disaster and embarrassment for Castro, but very quickly he turns it into a disaster and embarrassment for Jimmy Carter. What he does, he doesn't call the White House to figure this out. He calls Cuban Americans directly and goes, you know those family members you've been wanting to see for 20 years? You know what, come and pick them up. So within 48 hours, you get over a thousand boats, uh, small boats, you know, pleasure boats, some fit 20 people, some might fit 120, but, but you know, nothing big. And they all go to Mariel. And instead of letting the 10,000 people in the Peruvian embassy free, he lets 125,000 people leave. And guess where they all want to go? Miami. Now, included in that was his extra special gift, which was approximately 4,000 uh, convicted felons, which he put in, mingled in with the family members. So if you think that any American city has roughly 2% of its population of the people who keep the police busy, repeat offenders. So suddenly Miami has more like 5% of its population are convicted felons. And there are a lot of really terrible guys coming over from during Marielle. On the flip side of that, of course, 96% are the same as any other immigrants from any other time in American history. But they all get tarnished with this brush because when, when the bad part of Marielle hits, hits the street, this, this crime rate that's already spiking. We've had riots. We've got cocaine cowboys. And now the streets are crawling with, you know, the worst guys from Cuban jails. And, and talk about how that affected places like Miami Beach at the time. Miami Beach was not the Miami Beach that we know today. No. In fact, there'd been a building moratorium on Miami Beach. So it was, uh, you weren't allowed to even fix buildings that were falling down. So, of course, these were the cheapest places. Now they're the most expensive places you could possibly live. Uh, but, but back then, these were, you know, single-room occupancy hotels. And, you know, they either had a 90-year-old guy in one or maybe the other one was kind of empty. So they stuck a, a lot of the folks from Marielle in those, good and bad, all mixed together. So, of course, the bad guys from Marielle see the oldest folks from Miami Beach as the easiest pickings they've ever seen. So you get this extraordinary wave of violence aimed at the most vulnerable citizens in Miami. As, and then, it, you know, it moves beyond that, but that's where it starts. Yeah, and, and typically, I remember there were also tent cities under the expressways. You know, as a school teacher at the time, the school system had no idea of what to do with all of these kids who were coming into the school. Yeah. And I also remember at the time that the federal government wasn't very forthcoming with any kind of money to help this city out in any real way. Yeah, it's you, the, money, the money begins to come a bit, but it's very slow in starting. Right. right? And, and Maurice was at the center of all of this, right? Maurice Ferre, our, yeah. our, our, our mayor. And so how, how was he able to sort of keep it all together? What was his... What was his means of being able to somehow deal with this so the city just didn't completely fly apart? Yeah. Well, he had, in one way, he, he knew he had a lot of chips to cash in because he was actually a personal friend of Jimmy Carter's. Uh, and he had helped him in his election efforts uh, in, in, back in 76. So, he, you know, he jumps on, he's jumping on the plane to Washington all the time. It's 
but he particularly jumps on the plane a lot to Washington during this period. And he's really trying to get, get some help. He's trying to get some help in, in making sure that anyone in that boat lift can actually reach uh, Miami safely. But at the same time, yes, he wants federal support to help people find housing, to help with jobs and all of this. And the saddest part is, is this is really the end of a friendship as well. By the time Jimmy Carter comes to town, there's a scene in the book where, where he ends up in a limousine, Maurice Ferre and Jimmy Carter, and Carter won't even talk to Ferre. Uh, there's, you know, Ferre's asking for help and it just, it just won't come. Those purse strings really aren't opening. Of course, there are plenty of reasons for that too. This is the worst economic year you could possibly imagine. There aren't many, you know, if you open the purse strings, maybe nothing's gonna come out. Uh, but, but the city is really left to come up with answers of its own. Uh, and I think that's why it's so vital that Ferre had been doing what he'd been doing before 1980 arrived. Because guess what? As bad as things were in Miami in 1980, there was always a worst case scenario somewhere to the south, right? So in South America or Central America, Miami, despite everything that was happening, still looked like good value, you know? So the money is still coming to Miami. The business investments are still coming to Miami, despite all of this incredible chaos. Americans don't want to look at Miami. Americans don't want to visit or invest in Miami. But a lot of Latin Americans still did. And that's what really saves Miami that year. What, what does 1980 teach us about today in your, in your mind? Well, I think the clearest, the biggest thing that happens in the second half of 1980, all of this crazy stuff is happening in the first half. The fascinating sort of aftermath is how do people react? Who sticks around and fights for the city and who takes off? And a, a lot of white Miamians who can afford to move, move north and they go to Broward or beyond. Uh, what, what, what happens is you then get something called the formation of a, a group called Citizens United. And this is, uh, this is an almost entirely white group who decide to revoke Miami's ordinance that this is a bilingual city. Uh, and they have a petition drive that's hugely supported. And of course, what happens is when that's passed and Miami is suddenly no one's allowed to speak Spanish in Miami, which of course doesn't actually happen, uh, it makes the Cuban population immensely resentful because they're like, hang on, we've been the driving force of this economy for 20 years and now you're telling us we can't speak Spanish in the town that we've basically saved. Uh, so what happens before 1980, only 17% of Cubans are actually uh, registered to vote. There's a huge drive and there's this understanding that being a successful community economically isn't enough. Having one overriding political objective of getting Castro out of Cuba, that's not enough either. You've got to take place, take your place in domestic politics. And that's the real drive of 1980. I think that's what you really see going on through the 80s that, you know, let's make this a Latin town. This can work as a Latin town. And that's driven by Cuban Americans. And what is the aftermath in the black community as well? I think, I think that's probably the saddest of all. You've got these burned out riot zones, which were huge. There was a lot of goodwill from people like Maurice Ferre and Governor Bob Graham, uh, who was in charge of Florida at the time. Uh, and Bob Graham tried to pass a huge bill in Tallahassee to get a lot of money to, to start rebuilding, but Tallahassee was having none of it. It was seen as a reward for, for rioting. So these enormous districts like Liberty City and Overtown were pretty much left as charred shells. And of course, the flip side of the riot was, who's gonna give you insurance? You know, who's gonna invest in, in those businesses if they've just burnt down? What happens if this happens again? 
And there were more riots in Miami in the 80s. It wasn't a sudden, you know, accelerated success story. There were, so, additional, there were additional police killings as well. Yeah. That, that yeah. led to those. Yeah. Yeah. So the cycle, the cycle didn't stop in 1980. It continues. Things get better. But, but Black Miami is definitely left behind. And then you have, you have the legacy of the Marielle Boatlift, which are, you know, in my way of thinking, the 96% that you're talking about came and added um, so much to our culture, so much to the politics of Miami, and so much to its, its maturity as well. You have a, an incredible legacy of those who came over on the boat lift as well. You've got to feel bad for, for those who came, came over in the boat lift because they really did get tarnished nationally. Uh, there was a huge New York Times article that really shifts, you know, one minute the New York Times is calling for open arms and, you know, anyone who's a political refugee should come on in. And then the next minute it's like criminals and, and psychopaths are here and boom, suddenly 125,000 people are, are considered to be dangerous to America. And it shifts the immigrants. The truth is there were writers and artists who all came. I mean, Ronaldo Arenas, uh, some amazing artists. So I want to ask you something about your methods. How did you, uh, t tell me how you, how you first of all, um, followed up on all of these leads. And how did you come to structure your book and settle on the figures that you did settle on to tell the story through? <laughs> well, okay, bit of methodology. I guess I did the grunt work to begin with. Unfortunately, the Herald um, newspaper down in Miami is is not digitized back past 82. So I had to sit like it was 1955 and read microfiches for, I did that for a year, reading, you know, just going through a year and a half of newspapers and not just the Herald, other newspapers. So that gave me a good basis of knowledge and sort of those stories that people forget about. You know, we all pluck our favorite stories and those are the ones that we retell, but there's a lot that gets forgotten. So that was a big help. Then mostly interviews. The good news is 1980 is only 40 years ago. A lot of the big players back then were in their 30s. So a lot of them are still running around Miami and beyond. So I got to track down, track down so many of them. Now, who to concentrate on is fascinating. I mean, in one way, the ones I ended up concentrating on with were all obvious because they're all rather remarkable characters. Uh, but it's really a question of editing. I would think my editor, if she was on this Zoom call with us, would be like, uh, 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 don't lie. Remember that first draft you handed in to me, which had about 105 characters <laughs> who had opinions. And she slashed her way through all of that and was like, here, A, B, C, that's who you should be concentrating on. Those are the true stars. And I think she was exactly right because I had it in a very large, weighty mess of a book that she really helped corral. Uh, so thank you, Dawn. Yeah, no, a good editor is, uh, I, I want to see that book, though, of, of all the interviews <laughs> no, that you had. People say that, but I assure you, you don't. <laughs> so how does it feel to have your book, which talks about such a tumultuous year, come out in what might be one of the most tumultuous years ever <laughs> in our yeah. country? How does yeah. it feel? And what lessons can we glean from reading your book in terms of dealing with what we're facing today? 
well, A, yes, there's, there's a lot that feels, you almost feel bad that it's still so relevant, especially, you know, you read through the McDuffie stuff as opposed to, to the Floyd, George Floyd stuff. And, and, you know, McDuffie was such a good man. I mean, he was a dad who had already wrapped all the Christmas presents for his kids 10 days before Christmas. I'd never done that. Uh, so, you know, to have that still so relevant and to have him being forgotten in the first place, there's not even a plaque for Arthur McDuffie up anywhere in Miami or in the place he was killed. And I hope that will change soon. Uh, so in some ways, the fact that immigration is still such, such a crisis point in this country. I mean, you, know, you wouldn't think these were insoluble problems, but they certainly present that way for seeing as we're still talking about them 40 years later. Uh, you know, that we're still in a drug epidemic. Epidemic. We still haven't learned how to deal with, with healthcare in this country either. So, and here we are, it's an election year. We've got the rising threat from the East. It used to be Russia, now it's China. I mean, the similarities are crazy. The only thing missing in 1980 was a pandemic. Uh, so, and what can we learn? Well, if I was a president today, I would look at Jimmy Carter's performance and realize that dithering and flip-flopping are not looked upon well by an electorate. I mean, yes, you may have a little mercy, like no one's expecting a president to expect a pandemic, but you do expect a plan and, and a way out. Uh, you don't expect things to suddenly take a shift for the worst three or four months into it. And, you know, Carter struggled on this terribly. It was sort of public paralysis. Uh, and I think you're seeing, you know, that's playing out very familiar, familiarly as well. Uh, I don't think Americans are particularly forgiving of that. It's like, you're the president, lead. You know, maybe it's not the perfect direction, but, but you know, what are you going to do? Uh, and to be seen marching into every corner of the room means you've ended up back where you started. Uh, it's very frustrating to watch. And I think that was a familiar sensation in 1980. It's certainly a familiar sensation in 2020. Nick, would you read a little bit from your book? Uh, yeah, I'm going to read from from the very beginning just after we've been hanging out with uh, Arthur McDuffie for a, for a few pages uh, and I'll just read read uh, about his his last day last day so sometimes on weekends McDuffie moonlighted as a truck driver making deliveries to Miami Beach sometimes he gave up his time to help jobless youngsters teaching them how to paint houses just two years before, he'd painted the range funeral home where his body would arrive in exactly a week. On this particular Sunday evening, he was going to see Carolyn Battle, the 26-year-old assistant that McDuffie had hired at Coastal Insurance. She was pretty, independent, and stylish, with a preference for dresses and wearing her hair in an afro. He'd brought a helmet for her. They drove 15 minutes south to the edge of the Miami International Airport, where they watched planes arcing out over the ocean or dropping into landing patterns above the Everglades. Tiring of the airport, McDuffie took battle across MacArthur Causeway to Miami Beach. When McDuffie was a child, dusk would have found an exodus heading the other way, black Americans subject to a sunset curfew. But on December 16th, on the three lanes that ran east over the bright blue shallows, McDuffie showed off, hitting 80 miles an hour. They walked in the sand, stopped for Pepsis, and then at 9 p.m. headed back to Battle's apartment, just four blocks from the airport expressway. At one in the morning, McDuffie was asleep in Battle's bed while she watched television on her couch. At half past one, she woke him up. Jesus, said McDuffie, looking at his watch. He was far too late to show up at his ex-wife's house. Frederica would have taken the kids over to a babysitter two hours ago. How is he going to make that up to her? Had he blown it? McDuffie gathered his watch, his wedding ring, his medallion, 
still dressed in his blue jeans, two blue shirts and boots. McDuffie put on his knitted cap under his white helmet, tied his knapsack to the back of the Kawasaki and headed north towards home. Was it a wheelie, a rolled stop sign, a hand lifted from the handlebar to give the finger that caught the sergeant's attention? He would later offer all three explanations of why he'd first noticed the Kawasaki passing by. It was 1.51 a.m. The sergeant got on the radio, described McDuffie's white helmet and the tag number of the motorbike, and flipped on his red light and siren. On a cool night, in jeans, jacket, and helmet, he couldn't have known if the culprit was black, Latin, or white. McDuffie appeared to glance in his mirror and then sped through a red light on Northwest 61st Street. As the sergeant followed in his white and green county squad car, McDuffie blew through another red light and swept around corners, not even slowing for the stop signs. He'd picked a very quiet night for these tra traffic infractions. Within 60 seconds of the beginning of the chase, McDuffie was being followed by every available unit within Central District. As McDuffie began to weave and jig through the night, flipping off his lights and accelerating, he crossed from city line to county line and back again. Sirens wailed across the Central District. McDuffie was now followed by not one, but two police departments. The city cops in their dark blue uniforms who controlled a narrow but heavy, heavily populated area around Miami's downtown, and the county cops in brown and tan uniforms who covered the rest of unincorporated Dade's 2,400 square miles. They were better known as the PSD, or Public Safety Department. For a moment, it seemed as if they'd all lost in between buildings. Then the sergeant saw the motorbike accelerate away, its lights still off. By now, it seemed like McDuffie was being followed by a freight train, 11 police cars long. That's terrific, Nick. It's what grabbed me when I first read it. And what it was also heartbreaking as well. You humanized Arthur McDuffie in a way that um, I don't know that anyone has done in quite the same way. The book is The Year of Dangerous Days, Riots, Refugees, and Cocaine in Miami, 1980. The author is Nicholas Griffin. And uh, Nick has been my guest on The Literary Life. Thank you so much, Nick. Thanks, Mitch. This book can be purchased at indie, any uh, indie bookstore that you choose or at um, booksandbooks.com or at bookshop.org. Um, you will not be sorry uh, to read a copy of The Year of Dangerous Days by Nicholas Griffin. 